Author Media presents Novel Marketing, the longest-running book marketing podcast in the world. This is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and change the world with writing worth talking about. I'm your host, the Vulcan of book marketing, Thomas Umstead Jr., and today we're going to talk about how to get more five-star book reviews by effectively using editors, beta readers, and advanced readers. Now, back in episode 242, we talked about where negative reviews come from. There's a lot of sources of negative reviews, and there are a lot of ways of reducing the number of people who leave you negative reviews, reducing the desire of people to leave you negative reviews, and sometimes you can even have the negative reviews taken off of Amazon. But while getting negative reviews taken off is nice, it's not the same as getting people to want to leave you a five-star review. So how do you get more five-star reviews? You write a better book better according to your readers. They are the ones leaving the reviews, and so they are the ones who need to think your book is good. So how do you ensure that your readers will like your book so much that they want to leave you a five-star review? Well, there's a secret. It's almost a hack. It's so effective, and that is you get them to give you their feedback while there's still a time to make changes. You incorporate that reader feedback into your writing process, and you ensure happier readers and better reviews because you've written a book that more closely aligns to what they want. So how do you do that? Well, let's start by talking about beta readers. So beta readers, chances are you've heard of this term. You may even have some beta readers yourself. But when filmmakers make a movie, they have a test audience that they will test different edits of the movie on. And they will ask questions like, were the jokes funny? They will observe the audience to see if they're laughing at the jokes. They will ask if the movie made sense, and especially if the movie was satisfying. It's not uncommon for filmmakers to have a movie end two or three different ways. If you've ever watched the special features of a DVD and you saw the alternate endings, those were endings that were tested on test audiences to see which ending was the most emotionally satisfying. This is how they guarantee that that movie that they spent $100 million making won't be a flop, or at least will be less likely to be a flop. Hollywood typically knows if they have a hit on their hands going in to launch day because they've already been testing that movie on test audiences. Well, beta readers are just like that test audience, but for your book, except you don't need thousands of people. Uh, You only need a handful. Beta readers uh, shouldn't be fellow authors or other industry professionals. This would be like doing a test audience full of other filmmakers. That's not what you want. This is not the time to get professional feedback. This is feedback from your readers. It's very important that you have that reader perspective because the whole point is to get Feedback from the actual people who are reading your book, not other authors or editors or industry professionals. There's time for that kind of feedback, and we'll talk about editors here in a second. But I really want to underline that beta readers are so important, and it's so important to test your ideas to see if they work or not. You may think your ideas work, but maybe they don't. And this is even more important if you're writing for an audience that you are not in. So let's say you're 40 years old and you're writing for teenagers. Well, it's really important to have teenagers as beta readers to make sure your book makes sense for them. Or if you're writing in a genre that you don't read a lot in, 
really you need to be reading a lot in your genre. But if you're not, you need to have beta readers who are. And this is true for nonfiction authors as well. You need to know if the arguments in your book are convincing. If the book is holding people's attention, if it's answering the questions they are actually having about your topic, how do you find that out? Beta readers, beta readers, beta readers. So uh, what do you look for in a beta reader? Uh, I would say the most important thing is that they're a reader or a fan of your genre. Your mom, who mostly reads cozy mysteries, and the last sci-fi movie she watched was one of the Star Wars, but I don't remember which one. She's not a good person to be a beta reader for your space opera. In fact, if you have her be a beta reader for your space opera and you incorporate her feedback, it might make your book Worse, the kind of things that would make your book appeal to a cozy mystery reader may alienate the space opera readers you're trying to reach. So you don't want to have her give you feedback. Or, you know, you can share an early copy of your book with your mom and she, maybe she can find some typos, but be very careful incorporating her feedback unless you're writing a cozy mystery for people like your mom. Now, a fellow author who writes space opera is also a bad beta reader, because while this author knows your genre, since she's an author, her feedback will be too prescriptive, and often it will be too much in that author's voice. Uh, So it's okay to get feedback from other authors, but I would do that even earlier while you're working on your craft in your uh, critique group. Uh, I wouldn't have them as beta readers. You're really wanting to keep that crystal clear voice of the reader in this phase. Again, the purpose of the test audience isn't to teach the filmmaker how to make movies. The purpose of the test audience is to answer simple questions like, did you like the ending? (laughs) And all they need to say is, no, I didn't like the ending. That's perfect feedback because you just want to know if it's working or not. Then you can talk to your author friends about how to fix it. But what you want to know is if it works or not for your readers, for the people who are actually writing you reviews. So a really common question I get about beta readers is, where do you find... Beta readers, how do I find somebody who will read my book before it's finished, before it's edited, right? Who wants to read a rough version of a book? And I will say, you'd be surprised. A lot of readers love being beta readers. They love having their name mentioned in the acknowledgments of a book. They love influencing the direction that a book takes. There's a lot of readers who are throwing books across the room and would have been very happy to give a little bit of feedback ahead of time to keep that book from being thrown. (laughs) So uh, one place that you can find readers is on Goodreads. And what I would look for is readers who have left really long five-star reviews for books that are similar to your book. You're not looking for the person who wrote a one-sentence review. You're looking for the person who is so passionate they wrote a small book report about everything they loved about the book. The kind of reader who's going to put that much effort into a Goodreads review is probably the kind of reader who's going to make a really good beta reader. And there are also groups on Goodreads, and I'll have a link in the show notes at authormedia.com slash 276 for specific groups that kind of are a matchmaking site or matchmaking service between readers of a genre and writers of a genre. Uh, Another place to find beta readers is in real life. I know, it's crazy, but make friends with the kind of people who read the kind of books that you like. The more you read in your genre and the more that you talk about it with your friends, the more of their friends they'll introduce you to and you'll slowly be invited into the world of readers of that genre. And it's really good to have real life friends. I know, I know, there's a pandemic. We're afraid to meet in real life. But try to do it, or at least on Zoom if the pandemic is raging in your area. But real life face-to-face conversations, even through a screen, really important. 
and then also fellow authors. And you're like, but Thomas, you just said several times don't have fellow authors be your beta readers. And that's true. I'm not saying that fellow authors should be your beta readers. I'm saying that fellow authors, especially if they write in your same genre, may introduce you to their beta readers. <laughs> because, you know, for an author who's only writing a book a year, their beta readers may want to read more beta books a year than that. And so they can introduce you to some of their best beta readers. And that may be where you get some of your best ones, right? Somebody was a disciple of John, and then they went on to become a disciple of Jesus, so to speak. Uh, and then, of course, uh, super fans is the most obvious. Uh, but once you have your first book out, you're going to start getting fan mail from your readers. And uh, I heard a story of an author who got a three-page email from one of her readers pointing out every single continuity error in her book. And this reader is likely on the autism spectrum and wasn't very nice about the email. We'll say the email was kind of curtly written, but it was three pages and very detailed. And this author was emotionally mature enough to not get defensive. And instead, she said, these are incredibly detailed insights. Would you like to be a beta reader on my next book? <laughs> so you can find these errors before the book goes out. And the reader was so excited to be able to contribute. And now this author's books are squeaky clean when it comes to continuity errors, because she has somebody who has a hyper focus on just that sort of thing, reading through her book. It's hard to find these people before your first book comes out. That's why uh, for novelists, a lot of uh, things get easier once you've written a book. You can go on to write uh, the next book, and it builds on itself. Speaking of things building on itself, another really good source of beta readers are your previous beta readers. So when an author writes and publishes a book, they get better at writing books as a result of the work. As I've said before, the carpenter doesn't just build the house. The house builds the carpenter. But another thing that helps authors write better books as they advance in their careers is that they're able to improve their team of beta readers. So that first book, maybe half the beta readers gave you really good feedback. Well, invite those half back to read the next book and then go and find new people to replace the folks who didn't really do a good job or weren't very helpful or maybe never got you feedback in the first place, right? Not everybody gets you feedback because you're not paying beta readers. They are volunteering to give you their thoughts. And so you don't have to bring them back. But what I found is that as an author gets more established in her craft, uh, she tends to kind of solidify that group of beta readers. And they don't change a whole lot from you know book 10 to book 11, right? It's the same team. And that team really helps kind of guide the author's voice and really helps the author write better books when you finally have your beta team as like a savvy squad of ninjas, you know, catching every single trope that's not the right fit and assassinating it before it gets published. This is what leads to five-star books because everything that the reader wouldn't like has been assassinated before it has a chance to actually annoy the reader. Now, there's three kinds of specialty beta readers I want to talk about uh, real quickly. Uh, one is an alpha reader. You'll often hear these terms thrown out. An alpha reader is basically just a beta reader who gets uh, first crack at the book. Some authors will have an initial team of alpha readers. Usually it's very small, like three people, often max, three to five max. They give feedback. That feedback is then incorporated. A whole nother edit is done. The, the author does a whole draft based off of the alpha reader feedback and then shares the next draft with the beta reader. So the beta readers are getting a more polished draft than what the alpha readers did. And some authors go really crazy and they have like three or four waves of this. Uh, but I think two is the most, uh, I would recommend it if you're first getting started. 
Uh, you don't want to have too many beta readers or too many rounds of beta readers because it becomes something to manage. And just managing feedback from all these people can be difficult. Uh, better to get feedback from five people who are the perfect fit and give you really helpful feedback than to get feedback from 50 where you're having to sort through a mountain of conflicting <laughs> feedback. Some people think that the book is too fast-paced and other people are thinking the book is too slow-paced. It can be really debilitating if you're getting too much feedback and too uh, diverse feedback. You want to get really specific feedback from fans of your genre. I'm going to keep saying this because I see this as a common mistake. Uh, Another kind of specialty beta reader is an expert reader. This is becoming more and more important as people have more access to knowledge on the internet. They're more likely to notice technical errors in your book. And there's a whole like subgenre of YouTube videos pointing out errors in film and books you know they'll bring on some expert and he'll point out all the things done wrong in a book and the classic example is to bring on some soldier to point out all the military errors in a military movie or in a military book Uh, an expert reader is the kind of beta reader who doesn't read to represent the reader but rather reads to represent a technical specialty so is one of your main characters a doctor well, you'd better have a doctor read your book to make sure that what the doctor is saying sounds like something a doctor would say. As one of your uh, characters, an airline pilot, well, you'd better have a pilot read your book to make sure the pilot scenes make sense. In film, these are called technical advisors, and they're there to point out inaccuracies and to kind of help protect the credibility of the filmmaker, and you need somebody to help predict your credibility as well. I remember reading a Brandon Sanderson book where he portrayed real-life hacking, and it was the first time I'd ever seen a hacker represented in fiction in any kind of accurate way. If you've only interacted with hackers and hacking through media, like through film, you have a completely distorted view of what they actually do because everything you see on screen is fiction. That's not how hackers operate. But Brandon Sanderson had actual hacking done and it was incredible And because I've studied this. I'm a technical person. And I've had to learn how to defend against hackers, and I understand how the game is played. And I was like, yes, this is so exciting to see it actually done right for once. And I wasn't surprised to see white hat hackers mentioned in the acknowledgments of his book. He's not a hacker, but he didn't need to be to write a realistic hacking scene. He just had to get some hackers to give him some feedback. Now, white hat hackers, by the way, are the good guys uh, who defend you against the black hat hackers. There's a whole hacking world uh, that you can learn about and write about. It's very fun. Uh, In my experience, professionals typically love giving technical advice on books. And they're often tired of seeing their profession misrepresented by lazy writers and will work hard to help set the record straight for their book. And you may be shocked how much access you get to places and people when you say you are an author. Police will let you ride along in their patrol car for hours. They'll give you a tour of the station. They'll even give you a tour of their jail. You can get access to the employees-only sections of buildings, hospitals, castles, construction sites, and anything else that's off-limits to the public. If you can find the right person, talk to them on the phone, not by email, and say, hey, I'm an author. I'm writing about your area or your area of expertise Uh, Would it be okay if I got a quick tour so I can accurately represent you? Most people, when given that option, will say yes. They will be very excited to be accurately portrayed in fiction. Speaking of people being accurately portrayed in fiction, that leads us to our third kind of specialty beta reader, and that's a sensitivity reader. 
While the beta reader represents the reader and the expert represents the technical specialty, the sensitivity reader represents the different kinds of characters you have in your book. The most classic example is if you're going to write a female character and you're a man or vice versa, you need to have some people of the other gender read your book to make sure you're portraying the gender in a way that is fair. There is a whole subreddit dedicated to making fun of men who write unrealistic female characters. It's kind of embarrassing, actually, how bad it often is in the lack of just basic understanding of basic things. <laughs> so, uh, And it's not that hard. There, you know, there are lots of women in this world. You can find some to read your book and give you some feedback on the way that you're portraying women. But it's more than just gender. It's, it's everything, right? It's race. It's religion. It's anything else that an author doesn't have a good understanding of. If you're going to have a religious character in one of your books, make sure you get a re reader of that religion to read through the book to make sure you get the religion right. right? This, it's not that hard to do. And the reason that you want to do this is that you want to keep from knocking the reader out of your story because it is unrealistic or unrepresentative. It may be a better way to say it. I was in the car dealership getting my car repaired a couple of days ago, and they had a movie playing there, and it took place in the South, and every single Southerner portrayed in this film was either evil or an idiot. And it, this is so common in film that when someone is presented with a Southern accent, it kicks me as the viewer right out of the story because I already know that character's arc. They're either going to be evil or they're going to be stupid. And it makes the film less believable. It makes it less exciting because I already know some of the character arcs and it just breaks the immersion. And what can happen for a region can happen with a many different aspects of who people are. Stay away from portraying somebody in a stereotypical way. Not only is it offensive, but it also is bad writing. <laughs> because if I know this character is a stereotype, they cease to become an interesting character. They cease to become a character I want to know what's going to happen next. Because I know the southern businessman is going to turn out to be evil in the end. And sabotage the protagonist as he fulfills his righteous mission. Right? It's, it uh, takes away any sort of dramatic tension. And it just makes you have a bad book. So if you're going to portray people in your book, get to know them in real life and also ask them to read your book looking for anything unrealistic or stereotypical. What you'll end up with is a stronger book that's more fun and more likely to get five-star reviews. So that's beta readers. That's the first group to represent your readers. But another group of people that can help you get five-star reviews are editors. And you may be asking, but if I'm getting all this beta reader feedback, do I still need an editor? And the answer is yes. Yes, you still need an editor. Your editors may not reflect your target audience. In fact, most editors kind of come from a fairly narrow background, especially academically. Right? They tend to have the same, you know, five or six majors, not exclusively, but editors are not a representative sample of the population as a whole. And so they can't sit in the seat of a beta reader. But what they may not know in like the life of an airline pilot, they make up for in the ability of knowing what makes a good story, what makes a good sentence. And so you don't want to rely on your editor's educated guesses about what your readers want, but you also don't want to rely on your readers to catch all of your usage mistakes <laughs> because readers, they're really good at identifying problems, but they're not very good at helping you identify solutions. Whereas an editor has the toolkit to help you find just the right solution for the problems your beta readers picked out. 
when it comes to when to get that editorial feedback, uh, it depends on how many books you've written. If you are still writing your first book, you may want to start working with a developmental editor earlier on in the process because you're still learning how to write a book and you may not know your voice well enough to be able to interpret beta reader feedback. But if you've already written a book or two, uh, typically you get the beta reader feedback first and then you start the editing process. No one writes perfectly. No one gets to the point where they don't still need an editor. New York Times bestselling authors with books that have been made into movies still get editors. In fact, they still get a team of editors. Every book ideally needs three editors because these three editors do very different things. And I have a metaphor to help break down, kind of help you understand the differences between these three editors. Let's start with the developmental editor. A developmental edit is sometimes called a content edit, and it's an edit of the ideas of your book. If you're writing nonfiction, it's an edit of the story of your book if you're writing fiction. If we were to use the military metaphor, the developmental editor is the Air Force that scouts out the terrain and drops bombs on the enemy bunkers. Right? It's very big picture. It's very strategic. It's reducing the bad guy's ability to wage war. These editors typically will insert comments into your document or maybe send you a long email with general thoughts, often a combination of those things. That's the tools that a developmental editor uses. And the next kind of editor is a copy editor. We'll liken this unto the Marines. A copy editor, also known as a line edit or a line editor, this is the what most people think of when they think of an editor. This is somebody who's going in and getting face-to-face with the typos, getting face-to-face with usage mistakes like passive voice, and is using track changes to specifically change the specific words of your document. And it's not uncommon to go several rounds with the editor. So they send you back a whole bunch of changes. You incorporate those changes. You send it back. They make even more edits and they send it back to you. It's very common. And you're using track changes the whole time to keep track of it because a copy editor may add 500 changes or 1,000 changes to your document. And you know some of them may be as minor as adding a comma. Some of them may be as major as rewriting a paragraph. Uh, but they're not giving you edits on like, I think this protagonist needs more drive. Or I think that your logic in this chapter three of your nonfiction book uh, could be strengthened if you bring in this other research. Uh, that's the kind of feedback you tend to get from a developmental editor who's looking at the big picture. Copy editors tend to be very detailed people. And the kind of person who's a good copy editor is not typically the same kind of person who's a developmental editor. And when you talk with top editors, and I've had the opportunity to talk with a lot of top editors who've done New York Times selling books, in every case that I can think of, they identify as one or the other. And they'll often be like, I can do copy edits, but I'm not really the best at copy edits, but I'm really good at developmental edits, or the other way around. And so you do yourself a disservice when you have the same person do both kinds of edits because the kind of thinking that requires you to charge the beaches as the Marines is not the kind of thinking that you need to fly the airplanes and sleep in a nice warm bed. (laughs) So the third kind of editor is a proofreader. And uh, we're going to keep to the military metaphor. This is the army. So once you're done with your copy edits, your book is typeset, which is when the, the words leave Microsoft Word or they leave Scrivener and they enter into a PDF. And this PDF is the PDF that's turned into the printed book. And it's a similar process for the ebook. You have the ebook file that is turned into the ebook version. And during the typesetting process, it's not uncommon for new errors to be introduced. 
and for errors that you did notice the first time to become very obvious. So the army is the one who defends against these new errors trying to sneak <laughs> into and take uh, the ground that has been won. So the proofreader is looking over that PDF. And since they're looking at a PDF, they can't do track changes. So what you get from a proofreader is what's called a punch list. This is a list of changes along with instructions on where to find the mistake. So it's maybe something like on the third paragraph of page six is missing a comma after the word but, right? It's that kind of feedback. So you get this long punch list of errors that the proofreader found, and then you have to go in and in the whatever typesetting program you use, you have to fix the errors there. So again, we're outside of Microsoft Word at this point. And this is a hassle. It's a hassle for the proofreader to describe how to find the error. It's a hassle to go into the typesetting program and fix the error, which is why you want to go through as many rounds with a copy editor as possible so that you can have a clean proofread. But the proofread is very, very important. And if you do a good job with copy editing, it can go pretty quickly. You know, ideally they find like maybe a dozen things across your whole book. Again, it varies, and it also varies on how long your book is and <laughs> all of the rest of it. But uh, the proofreader is the one who's finding any minor typos. But at this point, it's really too late to make any major changes because then the typesetting would have to be all done. So proofreaders never going to give you feedback on the story or the big picture. They're looking for really minor, really easily fixed errors. And so those are the three editors that I recommend that you work with. And they, if you're working with all three editors, you're going to have really strong writing because while beta readers cause readers to want to leave you a five-star review, sometimes what keeps them from leaving a five-star review is the writing being weak uh, or there being usage or spelling errors or the sorts of things that kind of undermines your credibility. And somebody who enjoyed reading your story may not leave you a review because they don't want to leave you a three-star review because they like the story and they like you as a reader. And so this is why those editors are really important. So now let's talk about the third group. So we've talked about beta readers. We've talked about editors. Now let's talk about advanced readers. These are the ones that actually leave the reviews, the first reviews. Advanced readers get advanced reader copies or arcs of your book. Often before the book comes out, these are the people who get uh, the initial copies. And unlike beta readers and editors, advanced readers aren't trying to help you make a better book. At this point, it's too late. The book is being printed. The book is in process. Uh, there's no more changes typically being made to the book. Instead, they are reviewing your book to let other readers know if they like it or not. In the first few reviews that your book gets, set the tone for the subsequent reviews, especially on Amazon. So it's important to be very careful when you select your advanced readers. Something I see a lot of traditional publishers do is they outsource the selection of their advanced readers to a third-party matchmaking service. And this is a mistake. I've seen authors launch with really terrible reviews out of the gate. And those reviews, if you look at them, they're all along the lines of, I don't normally like this kind of book. And this book, it didn't change my mind, and I didn't like it. It's really hard to write a horror book that's so good that it converts someone who doesn't like horror into liking horror. And what is true with horror is true with all of the other genres. In fact, what inspired me to do this episode was a listener who reached out to me and said that she spent several hundred dollars on one of these advanced reader copy services that connected books with reviewers. And the first several reviewers left her negative reviews because they didn't like the fact that her book had religious themes. And the author was now stuck 
going into her book launch with a book that only had two stars on average. And people wouldn't buy her two-star book because they assumed that it was really bad. Because how often do you see a two-star book? And even people who would have liked it, who like religious themes in their books, weren't reading her book. And she was stuck with a book that she could not sell because of the advanced readers. And it wasn't because her book wasn't good. It was because she had the wrong advanced readers. They were not going to like her book. It's like opening a barbecue restaurant and inviting a bunch of vegetarian food bloggers to come and review your book. You've got to make some really good barbecue if you want to convince a vegetarian to no longer be a vegetarian. And if you're writing a religious book, it's got to be really good if you're going to convince somebody who doesn't like religion to like your book. Now, I'm not saying don't send out advanced reader copies. When done strategically, it can be incredibly effective. And I see ARCs as a particularly good tool for helping get media buzz about your book. Uh, when I'm doing a book launch for somebody, I, I tend to encourage them to send the ARCs to media people, journalists, podcasters, TV shows, anyone who's got their own platform. I don't see ARCs as really the best way of getting Amazon reviews. I see ARCs as the way of getting uh, buzz other places that can then lead to Amazon reviews. In fact, it's not uncommon for authors to skip sending ARCs out because of the risk, right? If you're sending them out to complete strangers, it can really torpedo your success. And instead, they use a launch team to generate those early reviews. And what's great about a launch team is that it more or less guarantees that your book launches with between four stars and five stars. Because the only kind of people who are going to volunteer to join your launch team are the kind of people who are going to like your book, or at least like the kind of book that you're writing. So you're not trying to convince them to like Amish and then like your Amish. They're people who already like Amish books and hopefully people that already like you. <laughs> and creating a launch team is one of the techniques that we talk about in the book launch blueprint, which is our course that we do just once a year. We're doing it every spring is the current plan and registration has opened now for spring of 2021. We teach you exactly how to put together a book launch and one of the sessions is specifically on launch teams and this is one of the sessions that's being updated for 2021 because the rules have changed a little bit about how launch teams work and more than that facebook is selling data to amazon uh, which is complicating how launch teams work so we're gonna have some updates that will help you navigate those changes in the book launch blueprint and instead of me talking more about the book launch blueprint i'd like to share with you a testimonial of uh, one of our students who went through the course last year my name is Amanda Taro, and I took the 2020 Book Launch Blueprint. It fell just two months before my planned release of A Strand of Hope. And as I was learning Book Launch Blueprint, I realized how much more time I should have prepared for the launch, and I didn't have that. So I just buckled up and did the best I could with applying concepts that I learned through the course. And with just that minimal application, I saw over 500% income growth from sales of this book compared to my previous two books combined on Amazon. In addition to that, I have seen continual growth in sales and I have kind of become known in my circle of author friends as the one to go to when they have book launch questions. So I definitely learned a lot. I did not even know how much I did not know about book launching whenever I took the course and it just opened my mind to different concepts of marketing, especially for me as a Christian author and how I can apply the principles I stand on with book marketing and how I can use that to reach way more of an audience than I even imagined. 
If you want to find out more about the Book Launch Blueprint, you can find it at booklaunch.fun or, of course, at authormedia.com, where you find everything else related to this podcast. Our featured patron today is Jess Lederman, author of Heart Set Free. Yura sets out with her son Luke on an epic cross-country quest to win back her husband and destroy the woman who stole his heart. So Jess Lederman, thank you so much for being a patron of the Novel Marketing Podcast. Patrons not only get access to a bonus episode every month, but they also get access to an exclusive discount on the Book Launch Blueprint. So if you are a patron, you can save money on the Book Launch Blueprint if you sign up through the link on patreon.com. And it's not too late if you want to become a patron and then get the discount, you end up saving net money. It's cheaper to do it that way than it is to not become a patron. And we'll have more info on how to become a patron at authormedia.com. Uh, a quick personal update. Uh, you'll, you may have noticed a couple of weeks ago uh, we missed an episode, and the reason for that was uh, what uh, Texans are referring to as Snowvid or, or the snowstorm Yuri. We got hit with a snowstorm here in Austin, Texas, the likes of which we've never seen before, and uh, it hit my family uh, particularly hard. My uh, grandmother lost power in her house uh, at the very early part of the storm and um, got up in the dark and tripped and fell and couldn't get up. And she spent the night on the floor of her cold house. Uh, the next morning, uh, her her caretaker came and checked on her and uh, got her into bed, covered her with blankets, and we thought she was doing better, but she ended up passing away about 36 hours later. And since it was at the beginning of the snowstorm, we weren't able to gather as a family and grieve. We couldn't even drive. Everything was shut down, and it was a very difficult uh, week, and I just couldn't do an episode that week. Um, fortunately, my house, uh, we maintained power and water the whole time, which we're very thankful for. Uh, I would say most Texans lost power at least uh, a little bit. And, you know, I know of people, um, in fact, a, a friend of a friend um, bundled up in blankets and froze to death in his bed. Like The death count is much worse than whatever it was reported in the media, or at least it seems to be that way. I don't, I don't have big numbers. I just know what has impacted my family, and I know of at least two people in our circle who died in the storm. So... Anyway, I'm thankful to survive I'm, that we survived, uh, my family and I, and I'm thankful that the weather has picked back up. And um, yeah, my, my grandmother had a big impact on my life. She's the one who inspired my viral blog post. She was the one uh, who inspired the book. I dedicated my book to her um, and was really an encouragement uh, to my writing this whole time. And uh, real feisty, spunky, tell it like it is, she... Uh, had no filter. She just said what she thought. <laughs> Maybe that's where I get it from. Uh, anyway, uh, Scooter Umstead will be missed. I'm going to miss her uh, quite a bit. And uh, she even occasionally listened to my internet radio show, as I as I called it. And she was using Facebook uh, right up there into the end, in, or in technology. She's 92 years old and sending emails and uh, liking things on Facebook and FaceTiming. She's a very tech-savvy person. So anyway, uh, just a quick family update on on how things are doing uh here in texas and uh, things are warming up the lights are turning back on and i'm thankful to be alive and uh, thankful to have uh you listening to this show 
and thank you for, for the opportunity to host a podcast. So anyway, you've been listening to Thomas Umstead Jr. getting a little bit uh, wandery uh, here towards the end on the Novel Marketing Podcast, uh, where I try to give you innovative ideas on how to promote yourself and your writing offline, online, and everywhere in between. The blog post version of this episode is done by Shauna Letelier, and the audio is edited by William Umstead. Live long and prosper, and thank you for listening.